Ted Bohork is here with News Talk KZRG. Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. This is where I take everything that Steve, Peter, and myself discussed this week on the Morning News Watch, and I summarize it. Nice little plot summary of the week. We're going to start this week off with the Biden documents. This was a huge, huge story this entire week. We talked about it a lot on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. If you remember not too long ago, there was a big, big story about Donald Trump having, quote-unquote, classified documents and other presidential documents in his home in Mar-a-Lago. Now, if you remember, the FBI raided it. (laughs) They were like, yeah, that's not happening, buddy. We're here to take all of those documents. You're done. And it was this huge thing. The Democrats said, this is illegal. He needs to be locked up. This is treason. All that crazy stuff. And what did we find out this week? Well, lawyers of President Biden found documents that belong to Biden from the Obama-Biden administration in a random unsecure closet in some of his old office space. Unsecure. Not only that, but 10 of those documents were marked classified. And those documents were dated between 2013 and 2016. Which, uh, to me, sounds a lot like what they dinged Trump for. Except there's a couple of big differences here. Number one, with Trump, they raided his home. The FBI fully raided, and they immediately tried to push for criminal charges. Just right off the bat. There, Everyone online, everyone in the political sphere, all the Democrats were saying, lock this guy up, he's done. So there's one difference, because there were no such calls to action from the Democrats or the DOJ when they found Biden's documents. So there's one difference. The other difference is that the documents that Trump had were in a secure location in Mar-a-Lago. I'll bet they were in his personal property in Mar-a-Lago. He had previously had meetings with the Archive Committee, with the DOJ, about meeting minimum security standards, and he did. He updated the lock on the door, he got a new door, and there was guards in guarding that entire portion of, of Mar-a-Lago, so they were secure. Biden's documents were unsecure. They were in a closet that was not guarded and had... And had a weak civilian lock. Not only that, but when Biden was asked about these documents, he said he was just as surprised as everyone else. So he didn't even know the documents were there. At least Trump knew what documents he had and where. Biden had no clue. He goes, what? I have classified documents? And sure, if he's trying to, you know, play the innocent card, that's fine. But that's a big difference. Because Trump had documents. And the debate was whether or not he should have had them. What did Biden do? Biden lost these documents. He didn't even know he had them. He forgot about them. So technically speaking, they were completely lost. And they they were classified documents. Dude. Now, reportedly, these documents contained information about Iran, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom. So the Biden administration this week, they were questioned very heavily about the whole situation. And Biden said that he is working with the archivist, the White House archivist, and he's working along with DOJ to get to the bottom of this. And everyone, all the Democrats this week, they applauded that move, saying what a grown-up he is. He's really owning up to it. And he said, there's no other documents. This is it. We'll get to the bottom of this. Well, a couple of days later, more classified documents that belong to Joe Biden were found in a place they shouldn't have been. (laughs) So now now we have a full separate set of classified documents that Biden just had stashed away. But um, the second time, they were not in an unsecured closet in a random office space that he had in D.C. No, 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 no. This time, they were in Biden's personal garage in his home next to his classic Corvette. So, you know, hey, look, 
anything near that Corvette is instantly safe because you know he's guarding that baby. So, yeah, a second set of uh, Biden documents was found. Again, at least with Trump, they only found one set. Biden now has several sets of documents that have been found. Pretty wild. Um, Another big thing that happened this week in this Biden document saga that was pretty darn shocking, in my opinion, and in most of people's opinions, actually, uh, Merrick Garland appointed Robert Hur as special counsel in an investigation against Biden for this document debacle. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all week, Peter, Steve, and I were saying, yeah, Merrick Garland's not going to appoint an investigation. Of course he isn't. Why would he? And yet here he is. He appointed an investigation. So we'll see what this turns into. Um, I have hopes that they, they find um, a solution. They, they find the culprit. They find out what happened. And I got to give Merrick Garland credit for this. You know, that's part of his job is to launch these investigations, and he's doing it. Um, you know, there was some concern this week that people were saying they were worried that this is nothing more than political theatrics, that this investigation is going to turn up nothing more or less on purpose, and that they're going to sort of assign their worst detectives on the case and sort of befuddle the entire investigation and and then be able to say that they did it. That's a real concern for sure, and we discussed that quite a bit this week, but at least the investigation is going on, so... We'll see what's going on here. Um, If found that Biden did mishandle classified documents by this investigation, he could be in some real trouble uh, because that is a federal crime. And we're seeing that right now with the push to indict Trump over these this very same issue. Um, Of course, it's not quite the same, but that was a, a big there was a lot of comparison this week between the Biden and Trump documents. In any case, it is kind of ironic um, <laughs> that both of them did it. So we'll see what that turns into. And of course, all of this document business with Joe Biden this week comes fresh off the heels of Biden reportedly being all in on a 2024 run. According to some insiders that are familiar with the situation, they expect Biden to announce in just a matter of weeks now for his presidential run for 2024. Now, he hasn't announced yet, but there's been a lot of reports of people again familiar with the matter that they say he's all in. He's ready to go. And just like the 2020 election um, up until today, up until just this week, a very major concern with Joe Biden uh, across the board, across the political spectrum, is his age. If Joe Biden is reelected in 2024, he would be 82 years old at inauguration. And by the end of it, he'd be 86, be closer to the age of 90 than he would 80 by the end of his second term, if reelected. So a lot of people were uh, a little bit concerned about that, but... Again, Biden has not officially announced that he's running, but um, he's expected to. We'll see what that turns into as well as this Biden document saga plays out in the coming weeks. Other big news that happened this week that we discussed on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG is this McCarthy business in the House of Representatives. Now, last week, House Republicans could not pick a Speaker of the House. It took them five days, five days of votes to pick Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And finally, after five days of negotiation and 15 rounds of voting, Kevin McCarthy finally walked out of that room with the gavel. He is now the Speaker of the House. But in order to become Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy had to give up a number of things and promise a number of things. And and some of those things that he had to promise became public this week. A couple of examples of things Kevin McCarthy had to promise include uh, a budget that does not allow the debt ceiling to increase. He had a promise to end all COVID mandates and funding, which is something that would take a few, you know, would, would take a while to get through the steps of. He has to push for a term limit vote in the House. 
He has to push for single-subject bills, which we'll see what that turns into. But the idea behind it is if you have a bill, say, about gambling, about sports gambling, you can't also have things about marijuana in it or things about the legal age of alcohol or voting rights. No, if it's going to be about gambling, it's going to be just about gambling. That's sort of the idea behind that. Uh, He also has to push to allow at least 72 hours being given for members to read bills. So if this goes through, in theory, the idea is gone are the days where a bill is finished and then the next morning all the House, all members of the House are voting on it. Now, uh, a bill cannot be voted on until three full days after its writing has been completed. And he also had to push for a vote on a border security plan. These are some of the concessions that McCarthy had to promise to push for in order to gain support from the holdout Republicans last week. Um, If you missed that news about the holdout Republicans last week and the whole McCarthy vote, you can always go to newstalkkzrg.com and go to last week's plot summary episode. I give you the full lowdown on all the drama that surrounded all that because it's a lot. Now, McCarthy had to promise all of these things and and many other things as well, and we're still learning uh, what those things are as the weeks go on, but... Despite these promises that Kevin McCarthy gave in order to appease the Republicans that were holding out on him, uh, some Republicans were still very nervous about him. They were still very worried that perhaps he wouldn't fit the bill. Perhaps he'd be too much of a rhino. Perhaps he'd work more closely with Democrats than he would with Republicans. That was a big fear that some of these holdout Republicans had of Kevin McCarthy. Well, we saw this week that that fear, while fair, so far has not been a reality which I think is good news. For instance, so far Kevin McCarthy is making good on his promise that he made to kick Democrats off of key committee positions. Now, Speaker of the House kicking people off of committee positions and and organizing things how they want, that wasn't really a normal practice. It was to an extent, but not to the way it is today. This is something we discussed a lot on the Morning News Watch this week. The way that Kevin McCarthy is playing this committee assignment game is most likely payback for the former infamous Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. When Pelosi took over, she immediately stripped GOP representatives from their committee assignments. I mean, they were already on the committee, and Nancy Pelosi said, no, you're done. She kicked them off, and she put her own people in there. Again, that wasn't really a normal practice. That was kind of uncouth, and Republicans at the time, they warned Nancy Pelosi, and they warned the Democrats that if they went down that road, of deciding to dictate who serves on what committees in full. If that's the game they wanted to play, it would open up a can of worms they couldn't put back. And we saw that very thing happen just this week. Kevin McCarthy warned Nancy Pelosi, and he kept good on that promise. And he said, fine, if you're going to kick our people off when you're in charge, we're going to do the same thing, because apparently that's what normal is now. Apparently that's how we treat each other. And if you're going to play dirty, then we have to do that as well, just to keep up. And that's what Kevin McCarthy did. Now, he did get some pushback from Democrats for this move, which was expected. And then Kevin McCarthy said, quote, remember, this is what Nancy Pelosi did. This is the type of Congress she wanted to have, end quote. And I guess that's the type of Congress that she ended up getting. A couple of specific examples of people Kevin McCarthy kicked off committees. The two very famous ones this week were Democrats Eric Swalwell and Democrat Adam Schiff. Um, They were kicked off of the House Intelligence Committee. Now, McCarthy defended this position this week by arguing Schiff openly lied 
about Russian interference in elections. And that came out not just on the political side, but in the Twitter files this week as well. If you remember in the 2016 elections and in the 2020 elections, there was all this talk of Russian disinformation, Russian links to Trump, Russian links and, and to bots and all this. And it came out these this last week that that was mostly false. Uh, Elon confirmed that this week with his new Twitter file talking about that very subject and, and sort of how they lied about it and that there was no real connection. They didn't actually have any solid proof that there was any connection. In fact, the only proof that existed was that there was no connection. <laughs> so that was a little ironic. And these Democrats, they knew that. They were aware of that. They were on the House Intel Committee. They had this information and they lied about it. And McCarthy said that doesn't help the American people and that doesn't represent us. That's not what this is about. And he said this week, so of course I'm kicking them off. And then he also delivered sort of a bombshell report this week that the Democrats kept Swalwell on the committee even after he was red flagged by the FBI. The FBI red flagged this guy as being a problem for this country. And the Democrats didn't care. They kept him on the House Intelligence Committee. That's a very important committee that wields a lot of power. This individual that was flagged by our own FBI is still on the House Intelligence Committee? McCarthy said, look, enough games. We're not doing this anymore. We're going to get some real Americans in these positions. And, And so, like I said before, there was a lot of concern leading up to this week about whether or not Kevin McCarthy would continue to push the conservative and Republican agenda. And so far, he's been keeping up his word. Now, will this continue? We don't know. We'll keep a close eye on it, as many Republicans will. But so far, so good. We're getting a lot done in the House. And clearly, we're bending in a positive direction here, which is great. And the last bit of and the last bit of big news this week on the Morning News Watch and News Talk KZRG, when it comes to the House and Kevin McCarthy, was this new select committee that Kevin McCarthy starting up. It's called the Weaponization of Government Select Committee. This committee will be led by Jim Jordan, the famous Republican Jim Jordan. And essentially, this will be investigating the relationship between Biden and big tech. And this week, we discussed a number of things that spawned this committee in this venture. The first one was public outcry. There was a lot of public outcry from the American people, from the voters, to investigate the Biden administration's and the government as a whole's relationship with big tech. And another big point of inspiration for the creation of this select committee were Elon Musk's Twitter files. You know, the famous tagline is that Elon Musk bought a crime scene. And now that he's the owner of Twitter, he has access. He's the owner of all this internal communication, all these internal documents. And it has come out time and time again. I think he's on Twitter file like number 14 now. The Biden administration had a direct relationship with big tech and were giving them instructions on who to censor, what to censor, where and when. We have more than enough preliminary evidence to start an investigation. More than enough. And Kevin McCarthy is is pushing for that with this weaponization of government select committee. They are going to begin legitimately investigate that relationship, investigate whether or not it was unconstitutional and investigate if there needs to be new laws passed or if any laws were broken. That's what this is going to be all about. I'm very, very excited to see that play through. And um, I'm willing to bet that Elon Musk and Twitter are probably going to work with Republicans on this investigation 
And I just hope that tech companies like Facebook and Google are going to also follow suit to get to the bottom of what this relationship was. We'll see what that turns into. Another big uh, political news that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk, KZRG, Arkansas. Arkansas has been killing it. They've been doing a lot of good stuff. Um, They recently got their new governor, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's the first woman governor of Arkansas in the whole state's history. So that's pretty cool. And under her leadership, the state legislature has really been pushing back against the woke agenda as a whole. Um, For instance, something we discussed this week, the Arkansas lawmakers introduced a bill that would define drag shows as an adult-oriented business, specifically. And the reason for that is it is an attempt to keep children away from it. Rather, it's an attempt to keep it away from children. The bill would amend state code to say an adult-oriented business cannot be located on public property or where a minor can view what the adult-oriented business is, otherwise offering to the public that it qualifies it as an adult-oriented business. You know, we have, we have businesses like this all the time. For instance, bars. Children aren't allowed in bars. Or casinos. You know, kids can be in the hotel portion of the casino, but you can't just be in the casino. This is a fairly normal practice for businesses of that type. And the Arkansas legislature is pushing to include activities such as drag shows to be considered a business such as that, or at least an activity such as that. That got a lot of praise from Republicans and conservatives across the whole country this week. Another example of of newly elected Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders really sinking her teeth into the conservative movement as governor of Arkansas, she signed an executive order that is banning the word Latinx from government documents. <laughs> Latinx, if you're not familiar, is the woke version of Latino or Latina. As you may know in Spanish, some words are masculine, some words are feminine. For instance, if you have a male friend, they are your amigo. If you have a female friend, they are your amiga. So depending on which gender you're talking to, you conjugate the end of the word differently. It's the same thing in French. It's the same thing in Italian. All the love languages have something very similar to that. Well, one of the big woke pushes is to get rid of gender in all language, including these love languages like Spanish that has gender baked into it. So they came up with instead of Latino or Latina, they're Latinx, or some people pronounce it Latinx. Well... Just this last week, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she cited a Pew Research poll that found that only 3% of the Latino community identify as Latinx. Only 3%. So then she went ahead and signed this executive order banning that word from government documents, and she said, quote, ethnically insensitive and pejorative language has no place in official government documents or government employee titles. The government as a responsibility to respect its citizens and use ethnically appropriate language, particularly when referring to ethnic minorities, end quote. (laughs) Which I think is very funny because, because the woke mob sort of like to use that, of being inclusive and using preferred pronouns and preferred language to describe whomever they're talking about, specifically when it comes to minorities. Well, Sarah Huckabee Sanders says, look, only 3% of Latinos like to be called Latinx, which, given that being true, referring to them as something that they do not identify as is actually harmful to them under woke law. 
<laughs> right? If you call someone a pronoun they don't identify as, then you're then you are hurting them. It's an act of violence. That's what the left tells us anyway. And yet here we are referring to all Latinos as Latinx and only 3% of them identify as that. So really, if you think about it, and if you do the math, technically they are identifying Latinos in ways that they themselves don't identify as. Isn't that also an act of violence? <laughs> and that's exactly what Sarah Huckabee Sanders over in Arkansas said this week in her executive order. Which, again, this is all language that the woke mob uses to justify their actions and their political violence. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, she's, she's throwing it right back at them. Which, of course, I find hilarious. And that got a ton of praise from conservatives across the nation this week. Because suddenly people sort of started realizing with that move that all the bricks... All the words and language and logic the left is using to attack the right, the right can use it just as well. They can. They really can. And I believe we're going to start seeing a wave of Republicans begin to enact policies and rules very similar to this one, using the left's very logic to defeat them, just as we saw Huckabee Sanders do. Um, In other uh, state politics news, Illinois made headlines this week. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker had passed an order that banned all assault weapons in the state. All just assault weapons. Any, any weapon that he deems an assault weapon has been banned in the state. But a number of sheriff departments in the state of Illinois are refusing to enforce that rule. Now, this was a pretty big story because now we're starting to see law enforcement start actively questioning, protesting, and working against... Some of this agenda, some of this left agenda. I mean, it's gotten to that point. And this was a really big topic this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. In rural and very conservative sections of the state of Illinois, sheriff departments are just refusing to enforce this, quote, assault weapons ban in the state. They won't do it. And at first it started in just rural and conservative sections of the state. But the mentality seems to be spreading. This is something that started early in the week, and by the end of the week, it seemed that double the amount of counties were refusing to enforce this rule. So it is something that is spreading, and, and uh, you know, for good or for bad, that's up for you to decide. But it is very interesting nonetheless. Now, Governor Pritzker threatened these sheriffs, saying, if you don't enforce the ban, then you're going to be fired. That, would, that was the, sort of the threat that the governor gave to these sheriffs. Um, and, of course, legal lawyers from all over the place, immediately fired back, saying that's not how it works. J.B. Pritzker, as the governor, cannot legally fire a sheriff because sheriffs are elected officials. Now, of course, if these sheriffs refuse to enforce this gun ban and then their constituents and the voters in their counties, if they voted that sheriff out, then there you go. He was fired. But that's up for the people to decide. That's not up to the bureaucrats to decide. The people decide if they enjoy their sheriff and if they think what the sheriff is doing is correct. Not the governor. That's what democracy is about. This did get a little bit of backlash of people saying, well, hold on, hold on. Isn't it the job of a sheriff to enforce the law? I mean, is it fair to allow sheriffs to just pick and choose which laws that they decide are important to enforce? Isn't that a little problematic? And, and yes, I, I think that is a little problematic. And these very questions were asked of these sheriffs who were refusing to enforce this rule. And pretty much across the board, all of the sheriffs said the same thing, more or less. They said that they believe this ban is unconstitutional. And they all said that they took an oath 
to uphold the Constitution and safeguard the rights assured to law-abiding citizens. Now, this isn't a federal ban, and this wasn't something the state voted on. This was something the governor spawned. He said, I am now banning all assault weapons. He just said it. And these sheriff's offices are saying that's not how the Constitution works. And they and their argument is that they are not here to protect the laws of the governor and of the bureaucrats. They are there to protect the rights of the citizens. That's what they're there for. And in fact, one county sheriff in Illinois quoted specifically from the state constitution. In the Illinois state constitution, it specifically says that elected sheriffs are, quote, accountable directly to the constitution of their state, the United States Constitution, statutes, and the citizens of their county, end quote. Specifically, that is their role, which means specifically their role is not to enforce whatever the governor wants to do that week. And that made some really big headlines. It made a lot of, it made a lot of communities think. And I think we're now going to start seeing this pushback against the federal government and this sort of one policy fits all mentality that the left is kind of imposing on state and local governments. State governments do have power. Local governments do have power. And this was a great example of state and local governments using their power to push back against what they believe to be unconstitutional. Is it unconstitutional? Well, that's for the courts to decide. And in a lot of these cases, we're already seeing those cases and those lawsuits being pushed forward. And by the end of the court cases and by the end of the lawsuits, we will see whether or not it's unconstitutional. Many people, many political and legal experts believe that J.B. Pritzker's ban on all assault weapons is unconstitutional. And many sheriffs think that as well, which is why they won't enforce it. And that mentality is spreading within the state of Illinois. And I imagine if something similar happens in a different relatively conservative state, I imagine a very similar response with very similar gusto will meet that problem. Um... The Georgia Project made pretty big headlines. This is something that Steve Scott got quite a laugh at this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. The Georgia Project was a group founded by Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is a far-left Democrat who has run for governor of Georgia time and time again. Can't seem to win. <laughs> this last election, she wasn't even close. It was, it was a little, little depressing, to be honest. Well, the Georgia Project and uh, Stacey Abrams may be in trouble. The Georgia Project is a charity that was founded by Stacey Abrams and her, and her crew, and uh, they were officially classified as a charity. They would accept donations, and they would use those do- donations to push Democratic agendas and you know certain politicians and all that good stuff. They had an $18.5 million bankroll. $18.5 million worth of donations, all spent without a trace. All of it gone. And nobody knows where it went. There is no receipts. There's no action plans. There's no evidence. Now, you could argue, well, you know, it's their charity. They can do with it what they want. But the courts argue something different. Charities can't just spend money. (laughs) That's illegal. Because, you know, uh, there's obviously laws about that. For instance, I can't just go and say, hey, I'm collecting money for blind kids. And then people donate to my blind kid charity. And then I pocket all of the funds. That's illegal. And also, it's highly immoral, which is why we made it illegal. So there are laws and rules about charities and what they can and can't spend their money on. And uh, a few courts in Washington ordered the charitable organization, started by Stacey Abrams, to cease all fundraising activities until they can account for where the other money went. All $18.5 million, gone. Where did it go? Nobody knows. Now, something else that came out about this Georgia project, this charity, quote-unquote, 
is uh, they should have filed the 990 charity form with the IRS back in November. A 990 charity form is the basic filing form that you need for charities. Same way you file your taxes, charities file a 990 form. It's how it works. It's how it's worked for 30 years. They were supposed to file that form with the IRS in November, but they didn't. They just didn't. And when asked why they didn't, the Georgia Project said, quote, the charity staff, including our accountant, are just now returning to work after a much-deserved break for the holidays, end quote. <laughs> so, so you know, how, how much-deserved is this holiday break if they can't even get their basic forms in? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's a basic form. Firing, filing with the IRS is a pretty standard practice. How well-deserved, how hard-working are these employees if, if they can't even get a form in on time? It is kind of goofy. Now, one of the big important things about this 990 form, why it made headlines, why people are worrying about it, is not just because it's bureaucrats and they like paperwork and all that stuff. Uh, It's because in that 990 form, there is an IRS financial disclosure. And that's where this whole question spawned. That's where all this investigation, all this intrigue is ultimately wrapped in around. That's where it's all stemming from. Where did that $18.5 million go? Did they pocket it? Did they... Did they tell people that they were collecting money to give to impoverished communities and then just keep that money for themselves and go out and buy a sweet Lambo and a jacuzzi for their backyard? Is that what they did with it? We don't know. But if they had filed that 990 charity form with the IRS, then with it would have been the financial disclosure. And then we would have had the answers to those questions, at least at least a clarifying thought of where that money went. But we don't have that because they didn't file it and they didn't tell the government or anyone else were that $18.5 million with. And this is Stacey Abrams here. This is the Georgia Project. This is the Democrats. These are people that are supposedly for the little guy. $18.5 million going into a small amount of people's pockets doesn't seem very little guy-ish to me. Now, Washington isn't the only state threatening legal action against the new Georgia Project. That The group's charitable solicitation license is expired, closed, delinquent, or non-compliant in at least 16 states as of this last Thursday. <laughs> 16 states, more than a fifth of all the states in this entire nation, they are considered a delinquent charity because they are not disclosing where that quote-unquote charitable money is going. I'll tell you, I don't know where it's going. In fact, right now, nobody knows where it's going. But I'm willing to bet it's going to the board of directors of that very charity. And I hope to see more than just them on delinquent status in these states. I hope to see a full investigation. And by the way, why isn't the IRS investigating them? Why are they investigating small businesses? That was another story that came out this week that we talked about on the morning news watching News Talk KZRG. As it turns out, small businesses are five times more likely to get audited by the IRS than large businesses and large charities, including this one, including the new Georgia project with Stacey Abrams. Small businesses five times more likely to be audited. So if Biden wants to spend the money to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, instead of hiring new ones, why don't you get the ones you already have and have them do their job and have them investigate obvious, obvious potential criminals, obvious cases that need to be investigated instead of investigating the mom and pop shop down the street that are just trying to make a living selling cookies. Just an idea, Biden. A little free piece of advice. And finally, the last big piece of government, of state government news that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG was the California budget. 
California saw $29.5 billion less in revenue this last year than they did the year before. In 2022, California saw $29.5 billion less in revenue. According to reports, most of that missing revenue comes from citizens fleeing the state in a mass exodus as they're trying to escape essentially oppression, really, or large companies such as Tesla moving their headquarters out of the state due to their ridiculous tax laws. That's where a lot of that missing revenue is coming from. Now, because of that $29.5 billion less revenue, the state is now in a $22 billion deficit. They are now running $22 billion over budget. Now, the great, honorable, genius California Governor Gavin Newsom, the first thing that he cut from the California budget after hearing this news was climate policy budgets (laughs) this you know they're so big on climate change is going to end the world in the next 10 years that this is the single greatest existential threat in the history of the planet in in the history of human nature of mankind this this is the biggest hit this is it the world's gonna end in 10 years and yet now they're in a deficit and the first thing they cut is climate budget stuff so maybe it wasn't that big of a threat oh world's gonna end in 10 years well, we're a little strapped for cash, so actually it's going to end in 20. Well, we'll, we'll make it 20 because we're a little strapped for cash. I guess that's sort of their logic. Um, the first thing Gavin Newsom cut specifically was the building of decarbonization and watersheds. That was a big thing he pushed for as part of this going green sort of thing. Um, and he also cut billions of dollars for electric vehicles. Um, that was something that the state was helping subsidize was electric vehicles to try and go fully green. Keep in mind... California signed a law that said not that long from now, no gas cars can be sold in the state. So I I don't know how they can cut funding to EV. I mean, that's like requiring everyone paint a picture with green paint, and then they immediately shut down the green paint factories. It's like, well, what's, what's, where's the logic here? You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, yeah, that got a lot of criticism, not just from the conservatives, not just from the right, but also from the left. (laughs) You know, the, the left constituents were not very happy with Gavin Newsom for cutting those. So, yeah, he's in pretty hot water all the way around. But, hey, that's what happens. When you sick the woke mob after others, it's only a matter of time before they come after you. There's only so many stops on the cancel train before it gets to your house, Buster Brown. Um, a couple of other random stories that we got to this week on the Morning News Watch is uh, space warfare and where it may or may not be taking us in the next decade or so. The Department of Defense, as of this week, is now prioritizing requiring rockets that are launching spy satellites to have the ability to defend themselves while in air against Chinese and Russian interference. So essentially the way it works is companies like Boeing or SpaceX or Blue Origin. Blue Origin is Jeff Bezos's space company. Companies like this, they would basically bid for these contract bids with the government. The government would say, hey... We have some precious payload that we need to get up into orbit, i.e. a spy satellite or whatever the case may be. Boeing, Blue Origin, SpaceX, which one of you guys can offer us the best deal to get this up into space? Whoever has the best offer, we'll give it to you, and uh, you'll get a bunch of money. Great. Now, the Department of Defense previously judged these contract bids on the basis of resiliency and cost. Which one goes the farthest, the most accurately, for the least amount of money? That was sort of the formula they were looking for. But with growing tensions between two major powers, Russia and China, that have access 
to advance satellite-destroying technology. This could be EMP waves. This could be missiles. This could be drones. This has spurred a huge changing in the Pentagon's mindset of what is important when launching these satellites. And they're saying, as of now, these companies will now have to prove to the Pentagon and to the Department of Defense that they can fend off Russian or Chinese interference. Again, that could be anti-satellite missiles or you know other electronic means, hacking, all that sort of stuff. And the reason why this became big news this week is because this was previously not a concern of them. But now it is. So we're now seeing a very serious shift, not just in the rhetoric of politicians being afraid of China and Russia and spurring up fear. We're actually seeing it in the Pentagon now. The Pentagon, people that have this information, whose job it is to worry about this, they are the ones saying, hey, we need to actually start defending ourselves because these guys are actually going to begin to attack us pretty soon. It's a little scary, I got to say, but at least the Pentagon and the Department of Defense, at least they're getting the ball moving on this. And, and, you know, I wish that they had done this sooner, but I will take it now as opposed to next month. So, yeah, we got to watch out for that. And uh, the last little sort of random story that we got to this week that made some headlines was the Uvalde shooter's mother. Now, as we all remember, not that long ago, there was that really tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas, at an elementary school, specifically Robb Elementary School. Well, this week, the mother of that very shooter was thrown in jail for threatening to kill a disabled man that she was living with at the time. After the whole Uvalde shooting situation, she decided to leave Uvalde. She decided to leave Texas as a state as a whole, sort of get a a new start, fresh outlook on life, I suppose. So she moved to Oklahoma City. And she was living with a disabled man at the time. They were splitting rent. They had their own rooms, that sort of situation. Well, she threatened to kill him. And uh, she was thrown in jail for uh, a couple of days. But ultimately, she was released a short time later because uh, a judge tossed out the charges. But the reason why this sort of circulated in the headlines is people were speculating what the family situation was of that shooter. And especially because a lot of the calls to action after that shooting, if you'll remember were calls for gun control. But there was also very heavy calls for mental health improvements and for family, home life improvements. How can we help each other there? And people were pointing to this saying, maybe it's not so much a gun issue, maybe it is the fact that violence was very common in that household and in the family of the shooter. Perhaps that was a lot of the discussion that hit this week. But there you go. That's pretty much everything we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Be sure to tune in next week on FM 102.9, 105.9. We're also on AM 1310. And by the way, if you're out of range or you're just not a radio person, we also do a Facebook Live every morning. So you can also not only listen to us live on the Facebook page, you can actually watch us live, which is pretty cool. You can see Steve's beautiful mug. But in any case, if you ever miss anything on the Morning News Watch, you can always catch it right here on Plot Summary at News Talk, KZRG.